Hello everybody, I would like to introduce myself. I'm Professor Małgosia Fitzmorris in Queen Mary University in London. And one of my main areas, if not the main area of uh, expertise and research is the law of treaties. Um, I.e., I have analyzed and researched many articles of the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And one particular article, this is Article 18, caught my attention and attention of my colleague, Dr. Paul Gragel, as very little known and very um, poorly researched and not really uh, attracting focus of international lawyers. So the result of our research is an article in International and Comparative Law Quarterly, which is about the legal nature of Article 18. Obviously, this article doesn't solve all the problems, but it is more like signaling and contouring the legal problems relating to Article 18. In my short presentation today, I will draw on this article and I will focus on certain legal issues which were developed to a certain extent in our article. So, first of all, perhaps I will read out what Article 18 um, talks about and then uh, focus on characterization of particular paragraphs of this article. So, Article uh, 1, Article 18 says in paragraph 1 that state is obliged to refrain from acts which would defeat the object and purpose of the treaty. Uh, in the period it has signed the treaty and or has exchanged instruments constituting the treaty subject to ratification, acceptance or approval until, and this is very important, it shall have made its intention clear not to become party to a treaty. And then the second scenario, because this was the first scenario of Article 18, it has expressed its consent to be bound by the treaty pending the entry into force of the treaty and provided that such entry into force is not unduly delayed. So this is a very puzzling uh, article. It is actually um, all the all the uh, provisions in this article, all the formulations, can give rise to certain analytical approach and certain differences of opinions. Practice is not very vast, so some of it is speculation, some of it is just academic um, uh, analytical approach. So from the... Um, drafting of the Article 18, we can see that this is somewhat an interim obligation, that this obligation no way is final, and there are certain circumstances surrounding this obligation which make um, this obligation to a certain extent uncertain. So this obligation has very vague legal contours. This is something which we know for sure, but this is not really much. So let's try to entangle to some extent the puzzling character of Article 18. So why do we have this article? 
probably the main purposes of this article is to give states time and chance to review the obligations to which they will finally consent uh, before they um, uh, consented to be bound by a treaty on an international, so an international plane. And then, in this interim period, this Article 18 can be said furthers and facilitates cooperation between signatory states. Signatory states. It's very important. This obligation has a very long history. And already in Article 9 of the Harvard Draft Convention on the Law of Treaties, this article was included as a good faith obligation. Obviously, during the work of the International Law Commission on the codification and progressive development of the law of treaties, this article was also discussed. And we have reports of special rapporteurs, Briley, um, Lauterpacht, Fitzmaurice, and Sir Humphrey Waldock, on the possible character of Article 18. So the main question we can say is whether it's a legal duty or a moral duty. And during the discussions within the International Law Commission and reading reports of the special rapporteurs, it's not entirely clear. So we can draw a line, which is uh, not a very precise line, in between, between the views of special rapporteurs. And we can say that um, uh, Briley thought it was rather a moral duty based on good faith, whereas Sir Hersch Lauterpacht and Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice were of the view that it is probably a combination of a legal and a moral duty. Uh, it was actually only Sir Humphrey Waldock which develop in more detail uh, approaches to the legal uh, understanding or moral understanding of Article uh, 18. And he emphasized that this is the obligation based on good faith. He said that good faith is an essential element of the obligation. And this is a, a quotation from what he said to refrain from any action calculated to frustrate the objects of the treaty or to impair its eventual performance. So um, this is the general outline. But now let's go uh, and try to analyze two scenarios to which Article 18 um, relates. So first, we have this period between signature and then a final expression to be, uh, to be bind by a state. So what is this signature? This signature can be uh, called a signature which is final in the way of approval and authentic authentication of the text of a treaty, but this is not a signature in the meaning of the final consent to be bound. The same applies to the exchange of instrument 
which also are subject to ratification. So this is not the exchange of instrument, which is provided for in Article 13 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. So, um, these are the legal, uh, legal procedures in relation to the interim period, which is provided in scenario uh, in paragraph A of Article 18. So now time-wise, when this obligation um, uh, ceases, this obligation obviously ceases when either state ratifies a treaty or makes clear its intention not to become a party to the treaty. So these are these two um, periods of time when this obligation stops existing. Now, what are the examples from practice? There are a few examples. However, the classical example, which I am going to now uh, rely on, is the um, Rome Statute, from, in, uh, from which United States um, decided to withdraw after signing. So we call it, maybe not really grammatically, unsigning of the Treaty of Rome. But this is really a classical example. So in the letter to the United Nations Secretary General, President Bush administration announced in December 2000 that United States did not intend to become a party to the treaty, and that, accordingly, the United States has no legal obligation arising from its signature. However, what is really interesting, that in no part of the letter, Article 18 was mentioned. However, obviously, this is something which Article 18 is all about, it is the illustration how Article 18 works in practice. But please uh, take note that although Article 18 does um, signing in the meaning of Article 18 does not cause any legal obligations, states are very careful to make completely sure that unsigning of the treaty releases them from any legal obligations. So, okay, now the question is, can such an unsigning of the treaty be perceived as an action which defeats the purpose and, uh, and purpose of the treaty? So, it's a violation of an interim obligation? I, in my view, that would be a dubious interpretation, since Article 18 definitely allows the state uh, not to follow up, um, to be bound internationally after only signing a treaty, which is not a final um, expression of consent to be bound. Now, um, another vague element of the um, uh, composition of Article 18 is the element of so-called undue delay. 
So what is this undue delay? Again, it's not defined in the treaty. However, uh, it is assumed that um, we have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. So we have to look at the circumstances of each individual case and also several factors which have to be taken into account, such as number of contracting parties, complexity of the treaty's subject matter, the amount of political controversy at the time of the negotiation of the treaty. Again, the classical example is Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which was opened for signature in 1996, but still has not entered into force. However, uh, this treaty has built-in mechanism in Article 14, which addresses such a delay, and it requires the United Nations Secretary General to convene a conference of all the states uh, which deposited their instruments of ratification to consider the situation and decide on further measures. So now um, I would like to say a few words on good faith. As we could see in both of the scenarios, the second uh, example was example of the scenario in Article 18b, when the, it was a valid expression of consent to be bound, but it was a period of uh, time between um, expression of consent of the, of, to be bound and entry into treaty of a force. So in both scenarios, um, the good, good faith obviously plays a very important role in um, analysis of Article 18. So I can only say that good faith, it's not according to the International Court of Justice, not in itself a source of obligation where none would otherwise exist. And this is something which you have to uh, remember. And it was what the court said in 1988 in the case border and transborder armed actions case Nicaragua versus Honduras, jurisdiction and admissibility. The other point which is pertinent to the question of good faith, and there are many, many points, but the, main, the other point which I would like to mention it's whether we look at um, subjective or objective actions of a state in not acting in good faith in relation to Article 18. Now, the next element is object and purpose. And object and purpose of a treaty has been mentioned eight times in Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and still remains one of the very mysterious and puzzling formulation used in the Vienna Convention. The first time that the International Court of Justice um, related to the issue of object and purpose was the famous advisory opinion, Reservation to the Genocide Convention. 
when the International Court of Justice explained that the phrase meant what is essential to the object of the convention, in the sense that acting against this object, the convention would be impaired both in its principle and its application. So this is how the court approached the object and purpose of the Genocide Convention in relation to lodging reservations um, to this convention. However, when we look at object and purpose of the treaty, it also depends on the nature. So they are views expressed by certain scholars that, for instance, in environmental treaties, when annexes and appendices play a very important role um, in determining the object and purpose of the treaty, uh, we should also look at not only into the main body of the treaty or umbrella treaty, but also in the uh, text of annexes and um, appendices to such a treaty. Like um, the, um, the example of it can be the Marpol Convention on the Pollution um, from Ships, where actually annexes are this part of the treaty where all sources of pollution are included. So there is exactly, we don't have exactly a ready formula how to determine the object and purpose of a particular treaty. And a very good example of the difficulties was the um, case uh, whaling in Antarctic when uh, the object and purpose of the whaling convention was the part, was uh, the main part of the pleadings between parties to the case, and each and every party focused on different object and purpose of the whaling convention contained in its preamble. So I cannot give a ready formula just to signal certain inherent difficulties in ascertaining the object and purpose of the treaty. So um, we can say that object and purpose, however, are two complementary and interdependent elements. Now, the formulation defeat, again a very vague formulation, and what it means defeat and what is the threshold of actions of states if they mean to defeat the object and purpose of the treaty. So it can be said that the threshold of defeat will be met if the performance of the treaty or one of these provisions is rendered meaningless and um, therefore it loses its object. Now, if we go to the classical division of uh, international obligation, or if you prefer, typology of international obligations, which was provided by Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice during his um, work as a special rapporteur on the law of treaties, he uh, came up with three types of obligations. Contractual on concessionary obligations, which are between two states, interdependent obligations where the uh, action of one state can defeat the object and purpose of the whole treaty. 
such as in the nuclear uh, treaties and integral obligations to which I will come back in a minute. So obviously, if we go back to this classical typology, we can see that in interdependent type of treaties, the issue of object and purpose is particularly important. Now, the new question which uh, we raised in our article is actually whether Article 18 relates and is applicable to all type of treaties. As we know in classical international law, uh, relations between states are based on bilateral relations. So this is how more or less we can relate to Fitzmaurice's typology contractual um, type of relations. However, we have also norms of, different, of higher order and also treaties which contain these norms. So is Article 18 applicable to treaties which contains norm of use cogens, erga omnes obligations, and erga omnes partes obligations? And this is something which the, we cannot give a proper answer, but I would like to set the scene a bit. So let me go back to reservation to um, genocide convention advisory opinion. Because it was the first time, I think, uh, first time in such a coherent manner when the court uh, turned attention of the world community at the different character of norms which are in genocide convention from the norms which are of bilateral contractual nature. The court stated as follows. The first consequence arising from this conception is that the principles underlying the convention are principles which are recognized by civil and nations as binding on states even without any conventional obligation. And then, in addition, the court held that in such a convention, the contracting states do not have any interest of their own. They merely have, one and all, a common interest, namely the accomplishment of those high purposes which are the raison d'etre of the convention. Consequently, in a convention of this type, one cannot speak of individual advantages or disadvantages of states or of the maintenance of a perfect contractual balance between rights and duties. The high ideals which inspired the convention provide by virtue of this common will of the parties, the foundation and measure of its all provisions. So we can say that this convention is not a bilateral convention. This convention has a special character. And if we go back to Fitzmaurice's typology, it can be called an integral obligation of the character of integral obligations. So it was adopted in the words of the court for a purely humanitarian and civilizing purpose. 
So therefore, we can say that with this advisory opinion, the court introduced the, type, the typology of, treat, uh, of treaties into traité contrat, which are contractual treaties, and traité loi, which are treaties of a normative character. So Article 18 was drafted with the view of contractual treaties. So is it still applicable for treaties of the character of traité loi? This is a very important, I think, and fundamental question. So, um, uh, how are we now uh, recognize such treaties? Obviously, human rights treaties, humanitarian treaties, can be said are the treaties of this character of normative treaties. Obviously, the uh, the provisions in each and every treaty cannot be all of a normative character, and it was already stated by um, Professor Pelle when he was working on the um, reservation codification of reservation to treaties, that each and every treaty is of a mixed character. But to, I think that to identify the character of a treaty as normative treaty, we have to look generally at the object and purpose of a treaty as a guiding principle, not as word-by-word -word analysis of treaties' provisions. So um, now, um, I would like to say that in relation to reservation of treaties, it was a very vivid debate as the regime of reservation to treaties in the VCLT, it's also um, relevant for the human rights treaties, so normative treaties. And as I mentioned, this human rights treaties has a special character. Therefore, I would like to relate everybody to General Comment 24 of the Human Rights Committee which is a body, monitoring body of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. I also would like to um, mention what Professor Chinkin said in relation to the regime of the Vienna Convention on Reservations to Human Rights Treaties. So she said as follows. The question of the Vienna Convention compatibility with human rights treaties, which arguably have a special character, is not new. Many scholars express the view generally the application of the Vienna Convention to human rights treaties is irreconcilable, irreconcilable with their special character, as the Convention embodies an empty, a moral world where states have reciprocal draft dealings only with other states. So I think this is a very strong comment. And by comparison, again, the question arises, is Article 18 actually compatible with the character of normative treaties? Can a state just walk away from a supposed legal obligation because it doesn't like it? Uh, or doesn't feel comfortable 
with it in relation to normative treaties, treaties i.e. of humanitarian or human right character. This is a new, I think, uh, ideas which we put in our article. So, <clears throat> I would like to uh, suggest that in many uh, human rights treaties, there is, they are monitoring bodies, and these monitoring bodies actually scrutinize um, reservations to, uh, to these human rights treaties and then um, engage into what it was called by um, Professor Pelle, a human and reservation dialogue, trying to convince a state to withdraw a reservation, which probably goes against the object and purpose of a human rights treaty. Perhaps it could be a solution for the application of Article 18 um, to human rights treaties, to normative treaties, that it could be also monitoring body of this treaty to uh, look at the application of Article 18 in relation to these bodies. It's maybe a very um, modest solution. However, I am of the view that character of the special treaties has to be looked upon and analyzed differently and also approached in practice differently from contractual treaties, treaties in which states act quid pro quo. So, in, in treaties which are definitely only uh, based on bilateral character of relations between states. Can we draw any conclusion from this short presentation? Well, the conclusion is that the normative value of Article 18 is very weak. And it is also weakened as a result of its succinct and at times very vague, very vague wording. Also, this is an interim obligation. These obligations are not final. Therefore, they are not supported by the, more, the most enduring obligation contained in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, i.e. Pacta Sum Servanda. So this is something which I also would like to emphasize, that these obligations are not really supported by Pacta Sum Servanda, which is codified in Article 26 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. Obviously, the weakest point of the uh, formulation of Article 18 is the object and purpose again, because it has so many uh, unresolved issues. So, we can say that at the minimum, art, uh, the interim obligation in Article 18 is based definitely on good faith, and, basic, and maybe this basing of this article and good faith can help to make more precise and more um, definite the otherwise very vague provisions of this article. But this probably can be all, only relied on good faith if good faith is understood as an objective criterion. So with this, I would like to finish my presentation. I hope and enjoy it. Thank you very much.